0: Perhaps the next unit, the necessity, nature, and purposes of Christian suffering would be the most sustaining. I think to learn that God is absolutely sovereign, to learn that suffering has a global meaning, are like. Standing on something really solid, but even when you're standing on something really solid, you can get beat up pretty bad by hail storms and and uh, finding something bigger or let's say more personal as to what God might be up to in your life can be very sustaining so the most common agonizing question after a horrible accident or a disease or loss of a child or loss of anybody is, is the why question. Why? Why, Lord, why? And, and that's not a wrong question to ask. It's not a sinful response if, if you're really open to his giving you an answer. If the why is an ugly in your face, there's no answer to this and I'm mad at you and I'm going to stay mad at you forever kind of response, that's sinful. But to cry out why I will, I'm sure, if, if I found out that Talitha were hit by a car today, I would say, God, why? And, and then I, I hope that my heart would come to these truths and find rest. So, here we go. The necessity and nature and purposes of, of suffering. I'm looking for my pen. There it is. First, is it necessary that we suffer as Christians? Second, what kind of suffering are we talking about? Persecution or, or disease or both? or How do they work together? Third question, what's God up to in it? That's, that's what I mean by necessity, nature, and purposes. So... I'm going to go quickly through. We won't read all these texts because I really want to get through this unit and you can read the text yourself another time, perhaps. The necessity of Christian suffering must Christians suffer. He summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. So the the mindset of a disciple when Jesus calls you is, all right, I get behind him on the Calvary Road, a cross is on my back, a cross is an instrument of execution, and I realize that there are many things in myself that are anti-obedience and I must deny myself many times things that are inclining me in a hurtful direction and I must be willing in this life to lose my life. Meaning, you make choices that would cause other people to say, you're throwing your life away. You're throwing your life away. Doing that mission in that God-forsaken place and choosing not to Use money a certain way, or if you're single, not sleeping around, man, you're throwing your life away. Don't you made God made you with a sexual nature? You're just going to be a virgin all your life? You're going to go to heaven and never have sex? That's crazy. That's the kind of talk that you will you will hear. And Jesus says, if if you want to follow me, it involves death, cross, denial, and of course, the reward is save your life in the end so let none let so then none of you can be my disciples who does not give up or renounce that's not the best translation renounce all his possessions I think that means you look at everything you have and you say it's not mine it's yours I will be generous with it and if you take it I'm still yours. There's so many of these. Um, let's look here to see which ones I want to... Nece- We're talking about the necessity of suffering. And I've already read you Acts fourteen, twenty-two, right there, when we started. And... Let me just close with that one. 2 Timothy 3.12 Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If they call the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his own household? It is necessary that Christians suffer. This needs to be part of our evangelism and part of our discipleship, that suffering or afflictions are not surprising. Do not be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes upon you, Peter says. And we haven't been well taught in the church in this regard. So many churches today have a kind of a rah-rah spirituality We're always trying to be upbeat, 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 because people come back to church if it's upbeat. Well, how's how's that going to get you through? The loss of your child or the loss of your job or disease or... It is necessary, the Bible says, and those texts are all there. Here, this is a more troubling question, I think. What, What are you talking about? What kind of suffering are you talking about? You seem to kind of smosh it all together, Piper. One time you're talking about persecution over here, and then you're talking about cancer over here, and you're talking about the loss of a job over here, and and you're talking about being in jail over here. What? What are you? Can you just smosh it all together like that? Because when when it says persecution type stuff, should you include cancer with that? Because persecution, you're suffering as a Christian. Cancer, you're Something else. Okay, so that's the question we're focusing on now. And here's my thesis. In choosing to follow Christ in the way he directs, we choose all that this path includes under his sovereign providence. Thus, all suffering that comes in the path of obedience is suffering with Christ and for Christ whether it is cancer or conflict. That's my thesis. I am smashing it all together. I am treating cancer and persecution as one suffering and the same promises that are given to one applying to the other. Now, is that right? Is that biblical? Can I have any right to, to do that? So here's my argument. All experiences of suffering in the path of Christian obedience, whether from persecution or sickness or accident, have this in common. They all threaten our faith in the goodness of God and tempt us to leave the path of obedience. So if somebody spits on you and mocks you or you stumble and break your kneecap, the temptation is at root the same. Namely, will we keep saying God is good? Or will we be tempted to say, if God's going to let this happen, the conflict or the broken knee, I'm just not going to follow him anymore. It's the same issue. Therefore, even every triumph of faith and all perseverance in obedience are testimonies to the goodness of God and the preciousness of Christ, whether the enemy is sickness, Satan, sin, or sabotage. It doesn't really matter. Therefore, all suffering of every kind that we endure in the path of our Christian calling is a suffering with Christ and for Christ. How so? With him, in the sense that the suffering comes to us as we are walking with him by faith. And in the sense that it is endured in the strength that he supplies through his sympathizing high priestly ministry. So whether it's coming from opponents, or whether it's coming from disease, we're with him. We're with him. We're standing with him. He's with us. For him, suffering for him, in the sense that the suffering tests and proves our allegiance to his goodness and power. And in that sense, in the sense that it reveals his worth as an all-sufficient compensation and prize. So he's seen to be glorious. It's for him. So if, if disease threatens your faith... Or conflict and persecution threatens your faith and you triumph over the threat because God is supremely valuable to you. He shines similarly in both areas. So you see how I'm, I'm seeing them as inevitably one. The same issue of faith is provoked in both. Skip 2.2. It's almost the same just says Satan is designing one and God is designing the other. Now here, I don't know if you've ever thought about this. Finally, suffering from persecution and sickness. Those are the two options, kind of. Are often indistinguishable. Suppose that the Apostle Paul got pneumonia from all this work and exposure. Like he said, I had... Uh, Cold nights, he said, and uh, shipwreck. So he's thrown into the water and day and a half in the sea and boat comes along and picks him up and he's totally overexposed and chilled and gets pneumonia. Would that pneumonia have been persecution? That is, was it a negative effect of his faithful service? He's on a boat going to Rome, God told him to. Or was it just a natural sickness? Paul did not make a distinction between being beaten by rods in his list and having a boating accident or being cold while traveling from town to town. He's listed them all. For him, any suffering... That befell him while serving Christ was part of the cost of discipleship. When a missionary's child gets diarrhea, we think of this as part of the price of faithfulness on the mission field. But if any parents are walking in the path of obedience to God's calling, the sickness of their child is the same price. What turns sufferings into sufferings with and for Christ is not how intentional our enemies are, but how faithful we are. If we are Christ's, then what befalls us is for his glory and for our good, whether it's caused by enzymes or enemies. Conclusion. When we speak of the purposes of suffering in what's coming, we mean both persecution by men or devils and accidents and sicknesses that befall us in any path of faith. That's a big decision. You need to decide whether you're going to make it with me, that when you're reading your Bible and and you read a text that's relating to persecution, you know, um, do not be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes upon you, First Peter 4. In the context, that's probably persecution. And I'm arguing that you can take all those texts and principally use the assurances and the promises in them for every other kind of suffering while you're walking in the path of obedience. So, uh, when I got cancer two and a half years ago, I, I I say, okay, that's part of my ministerial assignment. This part of the deal. I'm a pastor. I'm doing the work of the Lord. This is part of it. And I would have felt the same way if a man had shot me in the, in the shoulder because he didn't like what I was preaching. That's part of the package. It was a price that I must pay because I'm doing this. God was, you know, clearly, sovereignly, no man caused the cancer, I don't think, the devil might have. So that's what I'm thinking. And I would encourage you to reflect long and hard because what it does, it just opens the Bible up, lets you relax and and enjoy all those passages for you. You're going to say, oh, this only applies to people in Orissa, India right now, who are having their houses burned because it says, you know, their goods were plundered in in." Hebrews 10.32. Well, that is the most immediate, clear application. But if you had a fire at home tonight, and you lost, I lost all my books, say, or you lost some really precious heirlooms, could you read first Hebrews 10.32, which says they... Uh, this is so good, I should just read it to you, because I'm going to botch it if I try to do it from memory. Um... I want you to get this because I'm I'm pleading with you to profit from the Bible in the fullest possible way with regard to your suffering. So Hebrews ten thirty two. Thirty four, you had compassion on those in prison. And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you had a better possession and an abiding one. So here's some people who go to visit in jail. While they're visiting jail, people say, oh, they must be Christians too. So they go and they plunder their property back home. They, they burn their furniture or write graffiti all over the wall. Christians go home and, or, or something. Or maybe it's an official confiscation. You, we don't know from the, from the word. They get home and they, they rejoice. It says that. Isn't that crazy? You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Now, that's real persecution for being a Christian. Suppose it happened just by fire in your neighborhood tonight. I'm saying you could go to this very text and say, God, grant me the grace to joyfully accept this disposition of your providence because I have a greater possession and an abiding one. And this is part of my lot in my obedience to you. Now, what about purposes? What is God up to? You don't have to think anymore, okay, is he going to talk about persecution? Is he going to talk about disease or loss of job? He's talking about all of it. And I've got six. I might have added a seventh. I put it under, I was thinking about it again this morning, and I don't mean these to be exhaustive, but there's a battery of texts here about the, uh, we're moving from the global meaning of suffering to your meaning. Now, when people come to me and want to know why something—why Sarah Lee, right now? She's in a coma still, right? Some of you are her friends. Others of you don't know who I'm talking about. One of ours. She's seventeen, or she turned eighteen. Can't remember. Um, just lying there over at Regent's, just lying. Will she wake up in four weeks, five? So why? I think that's a just an absolutely good question to ask. What what God? What's He doing? And Adam made it, and sitting in a wheelchair and got all these pins in his hip. And why? Why that? Why her there, him here? This family deals with this. This family deals with this. prayed with a woman a few weeks ago just to put another... You know, I'm, I'm, I'm presenting such a bleak view of life in this suffering seminar that you do need to know I believe in healing. <laughs> I stood right here, and I don't want to make this a, a big Piper moment because lots of other people were praying, but a woman who said, I, I have a X-level lump in my breast, and I will go in for final checkup and then surgery and chemo and, and this stuff. And uh, she got an email three days ago. She said, you prayed for me on Sunday. I went in. They can't find it. They cannot find it. And they ran a second test. It's gone. So I said to the doctor, is this one of those praise God moments? <laughs> and the doctor said, I suppose, because I have no explanation. That happens, and we should ask that it happen. So... Um, Yeah, I can list off all the hurting people in our church, but I do want you to know there are people not only being wonderfully sustained in suffering, but others being touched in some significant deliverance ways. So, what is God up to? first thing He's up to all the time for believers is deeper faith and hope and holiness. Faith, hope holiness in your suffering, all of your suffering. So here's the key text, Second Corinthians 1, 8 and 9. We do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction, which came to us in Asia, and he doesn't get specific, but it's pretty bad. Look what he says, that we were burdened excessively. Some of you right now are being burdened excessively beyond our strength. So that we despaired even of life. He thought he was going to die. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves. And then here's the purpose. And it can't be the devil's because it's so good. So that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who, at the end of everything, raises the dead. So he thought he was going to lose his life. (coughs) And what was happening was that he was being helped to trust the God who raises the dead. Isn't that amazing? So sometime in your life, you will probably be brought, by some means, right up to the brink of death. And you will feel, it's over. I guess I'm gone. Either disease or some dangerous situation you're in or... Maybe some emotional, if this lasts another day, I will die. Something like that. You'll be brought right up to the edge. And among all the other things God is doing, and he's always doing a thousand things you don't know, this is one of them. God builds faith by knocking the props out from under our lives. Picture your life or your heart as propped up in its happiness and peace and comfort and contentment. with It's propped up with health. It's propped up with friends. It's propped up with family. It's propped up with chocolate. It's propped up with a good job. It's propped up with a reputation. It's propped up with gifts that you can do. It's propped up with being able to see and hear and walk. There are a hundred props that are part, and they're not evil. It's not evil. God has given you these good things. He wants you to see. He wants you to eat a little bit of chocolate. He wants these things to be enjoyed. But God knows when our hearts need help to not trust in them for our contentment. And so he can just, he just knocks them out. Allergic to chocolate. They'll never touch that again. Or lost my sight. Broke my back. My husband walked away. He just knocks them out one after the other. And Paul had all of them knocked out. He thought he was dead. It's over. Because the ultimate trust is not just the God who restores, but the God who raises the dead. We have an answer. As Christians, when all the props, when all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. So that's number one. And I hope that you will not be resentful at God that this is his sanctifying strategy. You you might be, but I, I hope you won't. I, I hope you will trust him and say, God, do you really have to do is it, do you have to do that? In fact, if if you're feeling well, I I think you should not be afraid to say, God, do whatever you have to to make me holy. I'm not going to read these others, but that's what that one is. Holiness. The Hebrews 12 passage is all about children being spanked with suffering in order to make them holy. And on and on. More texts. So that's number one. To increase our faith and holiness and hope by having the props knocked out from under our lives in some way or other. Number two, to increase the joy of our experience of our reward in heaven. What do I mean by that? 2 Corinthians 4, Therefore, do not lose heart, but though our outer nature, our outer man, is decaying or wasting away, now this is, this is not persecution, and this is not uh, necessarily disease. It's just aging. Just aging. There's, there's more to it than aging for Paul, probably, since he, he, he just spent himself so completely that his body was giving out on him. Yet our inner man is being renewed. Renewed. Day by day, for this momentary light affliction, and when it says momentary and light, he means a lifetime. It doesn't mean five minutes. It means 80 years. For Paul, maybe 60 years. This momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory. Now, that's what I'm saying. That's my main point. It's producing an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not to the things which are seen, but to the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Now, what does this mean? My affliction is producing working, bringing about an eternal weight of glory. There are some who interpret these texts, that one and and this one say, blessed are you when men insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad for great is your reward in heaven. They, they take those texts, that one this one, and they say, all those texts mean is that every um, suffering sustained by faith shows that you're saved and you'll go to heaven. Instead, and this is what I believe, of saying degrees of suffering here, sustained in faith, increase reward later. And... I base that because it, partly because that word "working" right there, and there are other reasons, like parables of the parables. You get five cities, you get ten cities, that sort of thing. I, I think there are differing rewards in heaven. Now, what what does that mean? In a nutshell, I think what it means is those who have to walk through. I mean, frankly, I try to come back. I hope I don't lose the point I just made. Cause I'll lose this one if I. I don't suffer much. I live in America, I have a nice house, I have 911, I have an insurance policy, I have Dr. Woodward who watches after me, Woodworth, and, and and I just, I'm not, I don't regard my hardships, which are some, as very large because I'm just aware of others' people's that are so much bigger. Um, where was I going with that? I lost them both probably in the process here. Lies. Yeah, and I was going to say, I I pray, um, see if it comes back, momentary light affliction, producing, producing. Oh, when I look at those who suffer massively in the world, everything in me as a non-sufferer says, God, do something special for them in the resurrection. I mean, don't you feel that way? Would you resent it if somebody who endured some horrible, long imprisonment and torture were given some really wonderful, special, excessive, over-the-top reward that you didn't get. I'd say, yay, can I celebrate with you? So, I hope you don't... I hope the idea of varying rewards in heaven doesn't make you feel like, oh, I thought we were all supposed to be perfectly happy. Well, you are all going to be perfectly happy. And so the way I say it is that some people's cups, some people's capacity is going to be bigger. And our cups get bigger through faithfulness in trial. When God takes you through a long trial and you don't throw it, you don't give up on Jesus, your, your capacity to know him and be blessed by him is growing. It's stretching. It's growing. And, and therefore, when you die and go to heaven someday, your cup's going to be that size, not this size. I really believe that something like that is the way differences in rewards work. But, but the main thing here I want to say is part of what God is doing for you in a long, drawn-out suffering is increasing the joy of your future. Mainly in the life to come. You may never have relief in this life. I got an email the other day from a family who's dealing with some stuff out of the state. Actually, it was from Doug Nichols who was telling me about a family that he knows. And it was so bad, so horrible when somebody asked them, how are you... Surviving, they said, we have resolved we will not be happy until heaven. Meaning, I think, any ordinary happiness that the world would give, we simply have, if God's going to do that, it doesn't look like it to us, we're simply going to be miserable until we see him, and then we will be happy forever. I don't know how you could do that unless you really believed in this. This light momentary affliction, it really is light because of the weight of glory in heaven, and it's momentary because of the length of eternity, is producing an eternal weight of glory. That's number two. Here's number 3A, and I added 3B this morning. You can see if you think it's significantly different. We suffer sometimes to awaken others out of indifference and make them more radical and bold for Christ. So the illustration in Paul's life is, Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances, he's in jail, have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. So that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become, has become well-known throughout the whole praetorian guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brethren, most of the brethren, the other Christians, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have become more, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. I think you can generalize from that. In Paul's case, it's, I'm in prison for the gospel. Brothers see me there, and they're not there. And they see me holding fast to Jesus, loving Jesus, ministering to the Praetorian Guard, writing letters, holding the faith, and they're saying, well, if Paul can be imprisoned for the gospel, we can at least speak for the gospel. And that's a beautiful effect of Paul's suffering. And I look at some of you, and it has that effect on me. I look at the price some people pay in parenting or some people pay in witness or some people pay wherever. And I'm not presently paying and I say, God, make me more faithful. Make me more courageous. Keep me. If they can do that, God help me. And so you don't even know when that's happening, right? It is. So a third purpose that God has is not just in your life, What he's doing in your heart, but in other people's heart, watching you, aware. Now here's, I remember this because Jason's sermon. So I thought about Jason's sermon, which he preached in this room a few days ago in the preaching class. This was his text. Let's see how different this is. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. So that we may be able, and Jason drew our attention to this word right here. So I will too. Comforts us in our affliction. So we're in affliction, and comfort is coming in order to create an ability. Ability. To do what? So here's a purpose. A purpose for affliction and comfort in affliction. So that we would be able, have ability to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we've been comforted by God. Namely, God's comfort. So we become mediators of comfort. Now this is not people watching us so much as listening to us. So you walk through something, pick it. You have what have you walked through one of the purposes now for having walked through that is to take the comfort whatever looked whatever it looked like, the help you got the help you got at that moment and be there for somebody when they 're walking through it that 's why which makes suffering a community experience. I hope I hope there's a lot of you from other churches here I hope none of you or us here ever has to walk through the valley alone there should be people who've walked through it before you all over you saying here's what I experienced and I think the lord will do this and here's how he helped me and and so on so that's that's part of what he's doing number 4 or would be 5 perhaps He's presenting to unbelievers tangibly in our suffering the kind of compelling sacrificial love that Christ extends to them from the cross. Now, this is is a particular purpose. Not everybody would experience this. Missionaries especially, I think, or those called to be very focused in evangelism through their... Life could, could apply to anybody, but here's, here's the way it works. Colossians. Now, I rejoice in my sufferings. Don't we'll ever read that lightly because it's amazing. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I do my share on behalf of his body, both to sustain it and grow it, he's talking about the church, grow it, <coughs> which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now, what does that mean? That in his sufferings, he fills up what is lacking in Christ's sufferings. And the answer is suggested in Philippians 2, where the same language is used. It says, receive Epaphroditus then in the Lord... Because The Philippian church is sending Epaphroditus with gifts to Paul in Rome. Receive Epaphroditus then in the Lord with all joy and hold men like him in high regard because he came close to death. He suffered like Paul did here. He came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life. Now, to fill up, just like this, what was lacking, just like this, In your service to me. So you see the parallels? So what do we learn from Philippians and Epaphroditus and and Paul about his own ministry? What was lacking in their service to him was the personal connection between their love and the beloved. So they love Paul. He's in Rome. They're in Philippi, a few hundred miles away, northern Greece. They love him. It's a complete love. But it's, it lacks something. What? We have gifts for him and he, he hasn't, he hasn't seen the gifts or tasted the gifts. He, he doesn't know how much we love him. He can't see how much we're willing to sacrifice for him. So, Epaphroditus, would you fill up what is lacking in our love for Paul and take our love in a physical form to him? And so Epaphroditus takes the gifts to him and he risks his life on the way and all of that, Paul says, is filling up what was lacking in their service. This is not a criticism of the Philippians. So what does this mean? That Paul fills up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. I think it's exact. Christ would say, I have a a gift. I died for them. I love them. I shed my blood for the world. They don't know it. They can't experience it. Something's lacking here. Something's missing. And Paul says, I'll complete it. I'll take your sufferings to them. Now, there are two ways you can do that. You can tell them about it. And that's sure what he did and we should do. Or you can do it like this. In my sufferings, I fill up. That means that one of the purposes of the sufferings of Christians is to be a picture of how much unbelievers are loved. Which is why I say it doesn't apply to everybody. But if you, at great cost to yourself, go to an unbeliever, across an ocean, across a culture, a blazing hot place full of bugs and terrorists... You're gonna suffer. And they will look at that, this text says, and they will by grace say that you're saying that's the way Christ loves me? Your sacrifice to get here was his sacrifice to get here? Or it might be as simple as you get a call in the middle of the night here, and somebody who's not a believer or a believer needs you badly and you're willing to to let your fingers get frostbit to help them because they're outside trying to do something and it's really cold in Minnesota and you can die in a few minutes when it's 40 below zero and the wind's blowing and they need help and it's 3 o'clock in the morning and they can't get in their house and if they saw you suffer to help them They'd know Jesus better. That's what this is saying. So that's one of the purposes. And there are other texts. Number five. To reposition the troops of Christian soldiers into places they would otherwise not have gone. First we'll look at the Bible, then we'll talk about. Possible applications to your life. Here we have in Acts 8, Saul at the stoning of Stephen. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church. This is suffering. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. I mean, that is major. There were, there were at least 10,000 Christians in Jerusalem at this point. 10,000 people were driven out of Jerusalem, away from their homes. Why? So then, those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch speaking the word to no one except Jews alone, but there were some of them men of Cyprus and Cyrene who came to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also preaching the Lord Jesus and the hand of the Lord was with them and a large number believed. If God has to, in order to get the gospel to new places, places that we wouldn't otherwise go, he'll do this. He'll do this. It's is called persecution distribution or something like that. He's going to hear these he, he had said, just before he went back into heaven, all power in heaven and our, all power is given to me. Go make disciples in uh, Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the world. And months later, they're all in Jerusalem. They're just in Jerusalem. 10,000 of them and the apostles are in Jerusalem. Nobody's in Antioch. Nobody's on Cyprus. You've had enough time. Get moving. If you won't get moving, I'm getting you moving. And so you should read the history of missions and how God has done this in history of the church. I mean, there are stories of, for example, uh, peoples, whole peoples being uprooted who are Christians and being sold into slavery and taken thousand miles away. And centuries later, churches in those places. I mean, there's a just, there are just amazing stories of the movement of populations throughout the world where it's all through persecution, it's all through horrible things happening and Christians are just transplanted all over the world by God's it's like, seeds that get, you know, dropped in the dirt and a big shovel puts in a truck, truck takes it down to the sewer, the sewer goes in the river, goes in a boat, goes to, to uh, Casablanca. And the seed drops and a tree grows up. That's an analogy of how God does it. Or He might just give you prostate cancer. So that you would what? You, you would navigate a series of relationships you would have never, ever navigated. Hospitals and doctors and radiologists and whatever, you know, all that stuff. Here you are, just in new places you would have never been. You gonna do anything with that? Are you going to waste it? So, have an accident? Got to go to court? Whole new series of relationships. Right? You going to waste that? God puts us. You remember, is it, somewhere in Luke, Luke 21, somewhere, it says, uh, You'll be hated by all nations in my account, and they will arrest you and bring you before kings and governors. And then he adds, this will be for a testimony. This is is evangelistic strategy. God getting you arrested to talk to somebody in jail is an evangelistic strategy. So that's an application of this kind of, of purpose for our suffering. Last one. Sixth purpose, to magnify the power of Christ in our weaknesses... And the sufficiency and surpassing value of Christ over all worldly comforts and pleasures. This is not very different from number one, but Second Corinthians 12 needs its special attention. Jesus said to me, "My grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in weakness." Weakness is not a comfortable thing to endure. We like to be strong. And he's saying, okay, but weakness is where often my power will shine most brightly. You won't look all that great, but I will look great. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content. That's another one of those amazing statements. I'm well content with weaknesses, insults, distresses, persecutions, difficulties. Now, that's a pretty, pretty broad array of sufferings. Weaknesses, people insult me. Distress is very vague in general. Anything that would bring distress into your life, persecutions, difficulties, that's broad, for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then am I strong. That is, Christ is strong in me. So, what he's saying is, what's your, what's your big goal in life? Is it to avoid suffering or is it to magnify the power and grace of Jesus? If your goal is to avoid suffering, then when it comes, you'll get mad at God. If your goal is to magnify Jesus above all, then this will happen. And it's not easy. It's a battle day in and day out to be that content in weaknesses, insults, stresses, persecutions, and difficulties. So last question to ask here before we take a little teeny break, is how how shall we joyfully endure the measure of suffering appointed for us? Is is there any way miraculously we could do it? And I mean besides knowing those six purposes. I, I think knowing those six purposes is a means to contentment. I trust you. I have seen Two, three, four, or five things you might be doing in my life that have great significance. It's not comfortable. I don't like being operated on like that. I wish you used more anesthesia. But if it can make me well and others well and accomplish these things, I trust you. Now, I just want to add one more answer from Hebrews. Go to Hebrews not. Matthew, it's the same thing. And we we already read it, so we'll just briefly touch on it. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners, and you accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. You might say it doesn't work, but it did for them, and it could for you, meaning you have a better possession and a lasting one. Better and lasting. You show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. It's better, namely full, and it's lasting, namely forever. It's the only kind of joy I'm interested in. In the long run, is one that is full and lasts forever. And that, he says, you know this, gives you the ability to joyfully accept the plundering of your property. I say it because it's in the Bible. I've experienced it some, because I haven't experienced very much loss in my life. But I do pray that when the loss comes, suppose my whole house burned down, and all my, I've got about 54 volumes of journals that I've kept through since I was 18 years old. I would not take any amount of money in the world for those journals. If they were taken away, I hope the Lord would give me the grace. You have me, and I remember everything that was in the journals, I'll tell you someday, in heaven. Something like that. I don't know what your present challenge is, but I pray that it will have that effect. Here it is. Here's the way it worked for Moses. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing, choosing rather to endure ill, Ill treatment. He could have escaped it, he didn't escape it. He stayed with it. Ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. You can always opt for more sin and more. Im- immediate passing pleasure what did he, how did he do that how did he how did he endure ill treatment and pass up pleasures he considered the reproach suffered for Christ greater riches than all the treasures of Egypt because he's looking to the reward exactly the same as 10:34 he was looking to the reward So when you must make a hard decision to let something go, do without something that you would very much like to have, one biblical way of getting the motivation to do it is looking to the reward and say, there will be for me, if I give up marriage, there will be for me a husband and a marriage supper that will be 10,000 times more than I would have ever known in this world and even better because I have passed it up or whatever your loss might be. That's the way we argue with our souls. One more here, thirteen, Hebrews 13. So, let us go to him outside the camp bearing his reproach. This is like Moses. Let us go outside the camp bearing his reproach. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city, which is to come. That's how we do it. How do you go to a place where you probably will only get reproach? You preach to yourself that the city we're in now is not lasting, but we will have one sooner than we know. That's how we do it. May God give you the grace to do it.